0: wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. ankle back. I know it's crazy. I just feel like I got a knack for this shit. Okay, happy June 1st. It is the beginning of Pride Month. I have decided to uh, start something new with my podcast, She Became Visible. And what that is, is I'm going to be highlighting a book that I'm reading uh, the first week of every month. Um, I am very, very addicted to audiobooks. Therefore, actually sitting down and reading a book is very hard for me. The audiobook has allowed me to drive, to hike, to you know, play with children, all kinds of multitasking type things and listen to a book at the same time. Uh, I do know that's not the best. I know that I learn more and I retain more when I'm actually reading the book. And often I will listen to the book on audio as well as purchase the actual book so that I can read along with it, then I really retain it. And I also like to highlight, which is the great thing about having an actual book in front of you. This particular book that I'm uh reading this month is not available on audio. Believe me, if it was, I would be listening to it rather than reading it. I made the mistake. Well, I don't know if it's a mistake. I think it's actually a good thing. I bought Brene Brown's latest book, Atlas of the Heart. And again, with the intention of forcing myself to sit down and read, uh, then I discovered that it was available on audio. So I have not only listened to it, I have used the actual book for highlighting and reference. And I have actually watched her HBO version of the book, Atlas of the Heart. So there you go. You would think I would know it by heart now with all of those mediums, but I don't. Um, but I do know that oftentimes I do have to read it. I have to see the words. I'm definitely a visual learner, and I have to highlight, and sometimes I have to listen to something two or three times before I really retain it. So that's an unfortunate thing, but it is what it is, right? I have talents in other areas. So anyway, so this book that I'm introducing to you, maybe I'm not, maybe you've heard of it before, Wife Number 19 by Anne Eliza Young. It is definitely a page turner. And let me tell you, I require that of a book. I cannot force myself to read a book that takes me two or three chapters before I get into it. I have to have a book that catches me from the very beginning and then calls to me. If I am forced to put it down, I can hear it in the bedroom on the nightstand saying, come back, come back. Uh, That's what I require of a book. And that is exactly what this book does. So well written so articulate. It is, is that a word for reading? I don't know if it's just a speaking word, but it's amazing. Okay. And what I love about it is um, I recently was watching a Ken Burns documentary on Ernest Hemingway. And one of the things that he said was he likes to, when he writes He writes so that people actually feel the life experience. He wants them to feel that they as well are eating or experiencing whatever it is he's writing about. And one of the things he said was, let me read you this quote. Um, Don't let yourself slip and get any perfect characters. Keep them people, 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 and don't let them get to be symbols. He also there was a quote that was on the Ken Burns documentary where he talks about never just telling the good side of people that you have to tell both sides of people, because that is reality. And I love, though, what he said about when you only give a perfect version of a person, they become a symbol rather than a real person. And definitely in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise and appropriately known as Mormons. Um, They only portray the good side. They only portray the symbol side of people, which I feel makes all of the rest of us humans always feel inadequate. We never feel like we're enough because we couldn't live up to the standard, the bar that has been set by these portrayed perfect individuals. I think that's very damaging. I believe that there would not be as many People leaving the church if all of these humans that have been instrumental in the development of the Mormon church, if they were portrayed as humans with fallibility. And it's very ironic because the church is the first to say that the people that God has to work with are human. And unfortunately, that means they're um, fallible. They say that, but then they will deny anything as being um, as being imperfect or wrong, or that it was intentional. Everything is an unintentional mistake. They never apologized for anything. And one of the biggest things that I think has been portrayed, or one of the most important people, are the first two prophets of the church, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Because there were such dramatic events surrounding their lives, the actual beginning and founding of the church, and then taking the members of the church across the plains and and colonizing the state of Utah, which was not the state of Utah, obviously, when they went there. But Brigham Young led the people and went there. Joseph Smith led the people and created this uh, only true church upon the earth. So these are very, very, the first two Symbols of the church, and they are meant, they are only portrayed as perfect, fabulous, amazing tools in God's hand. Well, they were tools, all right, but I don't know about in God's hands. Anyway, so what I love about this is I believe that Annalisa Young is telling a, a more perfect version of who these people were. And I think it's refreshing. I think if you are beginning your deconstruction in the church, uh, this might be one of the first books you read because there's a lot of history in there. And it will definitely be a very great way to start you down the path of deconstruction. And I believe it will open your eyes to other trails that you can go down. Um, And I think it's a good way of starting out because she was kind of a person that was there that her story is her story. It's not a third person retelling. It's actually her story of what happened. And hey, I'm not saying that everything she says is 100% confirmed, uh, but I'm saying she's really close, a lot closer than some of the people are today that are doing, um, making commentary and research. You know, she was there, this is her story. Uh, Whether it is a truth, it is her truth. And I would rather read the history from someone who was there than a historical rendition of what someone has heard from people who were there. But that's good, too. I'm not I'm not saying that that's not a good thing because, oh, my gosh, I have learned so many things from the fabulous historians that are out there, Um, especially Lindsay Hansen Park. I love you. Anyway, so let me tell you a little bit about Anne Eliza Young. Um, she was also known as Anne Eliza Webb D. Young Denning. Uh, she was one of Brigham Young's 55 wives and later a critic of polygamy. Her autobiography, Wife Number 19, was a recollection of her experiences in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I think one of the other reasons why I think this is so important is because it is her recollection of her experiences in the church. Everybody knows, I think everybody knows um, that there is a special on the Hulu channel right now called Under the Banner of Heaven. And there's been a lot of chit chat about whether it's a true story of a Mormon's life. And what I've heard is it might not be your story but it is someone else's story. And just because you didn't experience that as a member of the church doesn't mean it doesn't happen, doesn't mean it didn't happen, doesn't mean that there isn't truth there. So I believe that her recollection is another thing we can listen to, another side of the story that we can take in. So she grew up in a polygamous household, which moved to Utah during the Mormon migration. And Eliza was married and divorced three times, first to James D., then Young, and finally Moses Denning. Her divorce from Young reached a national audience when Anne Eliza sued with allegations of neglect, cruel treatment, and desertion. She was born a member of the LDS church, but was excommunicated shortly after her public divorce from Young, which seems to be the standard behavior. If you uh, don't go along with everything, and if you happen to open your mouth about anything, you will get excommunicated. So that's a way to be open and honest. Anyway, um, she was born in Nauvoo, Illinois in 1844 to Chauncey Griswold Webb and his wife, Eliza Jane Churchill. Chauncey Webb was a 32-year-old carriage maker and Eliza Jane, a 29-year-old school teacher at the time of Anna Eliza's birth. Anna Eliza was the youngest of five children, four of which survived to adulthood. Her three older brothers were Chauncey Gilbert, Edward Milo, and Lorenzo Dow. Anne Eliza was about a year old when her father took a second wife, Elizabeth Taft, in accordance with the temporary polygamous practices of the LDS Church. In 1846, the Webb family moved to the Salt Lake Valley with the Mormon pioneers. As a teenager in Utah, Webb and other Latter-day Saint young people participated in local theatrics, theatricals and dancing. Anna Eliza married James D. monogamously on April 10th, 1863 in Salt Lake City. They had two sons together, Edward Wesley and Leonard Louis Lorenzo. Others have referred to her as, oh wait, did I skip a page? Let me see. Oh, but the couple later divorced. According to her biographer, Irving Wallace, for the rest of her days, Ann Eliza would always refer to James D. as the man who blighted her life. On the advice of her family, Ann Eliza married Brigham Young, the second president of the LDS church, when he was, are you ready? 67 years old, and she was 24. They were married on April 7th. 1869. The ceremony was presided over by LDS church leader Heber C. Kimball. Not surprising there. At her request, Ann Eliza was set up in a separate home in Salt Lake City on the condition that she visit the Lion House on occasion. So already you can see that she's very, very smart. So she was willing to marry Brigham Young at 24 when he was 67, but her conditions were, I will get my own house good idea for all of us. (laughs) Oh, dating was so much more fun. Anyway, although Anna Eliza later called herself Young's wife, number 19, others have referred to her as his 27th wife. One researcher concluded that she was actually the 52nd woman to marry Young. The discrepancies may be due in part to difficulties in defining what constitutes a wife, in early Mormon polygamous practices. Hmm. A book published in the the 1890s and endorsed by church leaders entitled Pictures and Biographies of Brigham Young and His Wives provide brief descriptions of 26 wives, including Anne Eliza. In 1873, Brigham Young allowed Latter-day Saints to take on boarders who were not members of the faith. The Methodist reverend C.C. Stratton and his wife boarded with Anne Eliza. It is possible that the couple's efforts may have aided in Anne Eliza's legal counsel, oh wait, in, in her, oh it's rather, in her decision to leave Young and the LDS church. On Anne Eliza's legal counsel was Judge Hagen, who also believed that Stratton was primarily to blame for Ann Eliza's separation from Young. In a statement, Stratton denied having any influence on Annalisa's decision, claiming instead that he had encouraged her to stay in her situation with Young. He indicated, however, that Annalisa was a person of womanly instincts whose present position was exceedingly distasteful to her. I love that. Womanly instincts. That should be the name of the book. We should all possess womanly instincts. Well, we probably have them, we just don't listen to them, correct? Correct. So we need to start listening to our womanly instincts. Anyway, Reverend Stratton was invited to be listed listed as Anne Eliza's next friend in the divorce case. Judge Hagen believed that Stratton's background as a Methodist minister would validate the indictments against Young and the LDS church. Stratton refused, however due to other high-profile legal circumstances, which had forced him to leave his previous ministry in Portland, Oregon. Okay, I want to know more about that. That's a little bit sketchy, isn't it? All right, so Anne Eliza filed for divorce from Young in January 1873, an act that attracted much attention. Her bill for divorce alleged neglect, no doubt, cruel treatment, no doubt, and desertion, and claimed that her husband had property worth $8 million and an income exceeding $40,000 a month. What is $40,000 a month in 1873? That's a lot of money. Uh, Young countered that he owned less than $600,000 in property and that his income was less than $6,000 per month. Wow. OK, Aunt Eliza was excommunicated from the LDS Church on the 10th of October 1874. The divorce was granted in January 1875, and Young was ordered to pay $500 per month allowance, as well as $3,000 in court fees. When Young initially refused, he was found in contempt of court and sentenced to a day in jail with an additional $25 fine. The alimony award was later set aside on the grounds that the marriage was polygamous and therefore legally invalid. (gasps) The polygamous nature of the marriage was exposed to expose them to potential indictments for unlawful cohabitation. After her excommunication, Annalisa converted to the Methodist Episcopal faith. Eliza subsequently, subsequently traveled the United States and spoke out against polygamy. I love this woman already. Mormonism and Brigham Young. She testified before the US Congress on April 14th, 1874. A couple months later, the Poland Act was signed in law, which reorganized the judicial system of the Utah territory and facilitated the federal prosecution of LDS church polygamists. In a biographical entry on Brigham Young in American National Biography, Leonard Arrington stated that Anne Eliza's lectures against Young were influential in the federal anti-polygamy legislation of 1882 and 1887. That is amazing. I mean, that is what one woman did, okay? The name of my podcast is She Became Visible. However, any of you that have been members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, have you ever heard of Ann Eliza Young? But nowhere will you learn in Sunday school that she was influential in the federal anti-polygamy legislation. It took a woman to stand up and speak out and tell the world what was happening. So anyway, after her divorce from Brigham Young, Ann Eliza married 53-year-old Moses Denning of Manistee, Michigan, a non-Mormon and wealthy logger known to have only one arm. Is that how you want to be known? I mean, is that what? Yes, at their funeral, they will say, Moses R. Denning only had one arm. The end. I mean, you want to be known for a little bit more than that, right? Two years prior to her marriage to Denning, who was married with children at the time, Ann Eliza stayed at his home. Oh, it's one of those. Ann Eliza scaled back her crusade against Mormonism and polygamy and stopped delivering lectures the week she married Denning. Was she brought in as a nanny. You know how those nannies can get. Blah. In uh, a 1907 article on the 30th anniversary of Brigham Young's death, updated the public on this then surviving widows and stated that Annalisa was divorced for the third time and living in Lansing, Michigan. And the 1900 U.S. Census had reported her living in Breckenridge, Summit County, Colorado. Annalisa eventually returned to Utah to claim a $2,000 legacy from her first husband, James D. Okay, this woman, you know, hey she got around. All right. I love it. In 1908, she published a revised version of wife number 19 entitled Life in Mormon Bondage, a revision that excluded any mention of her first marriage to D or her third marriage to Denning. By 1910, she had moved to Sparks, Nevada. She eventually became estranged from her family including her children. One of her grandsons told Wallace that neither of her sons maintained contact with her after they reached early adulthood. In 1930, her older grandson told Wallace, I hope to hell I never see her again. She died at her home in sparks of pneumonia related to old age. She was buried on December 6th in Mountain View Cemetery, Reno, Nevada. Sounds like she was a little bit of a spitfire and maybe a little bit hard to live with, you know? The interesting thing, though, is I, I, as I mentioned, I was watching this documentary on um, Ernest Hemingway, and he had a very volatile relationship with his father, who was also very religious, very stern and drank a lot and was prone to complete, you know, change behavior in like five seconds. He would be this very loving father and then within minutes would become violent. Um, His mother was also a little wacky but it's interesting the way that she's portrayed versus how he was portrayed. Um, he was a doctor, he was uh, gone a lot because of his profession. And they talked a little bit about they, they, I don't remember the exact words, but I felt as though they portrayed him as a man who would uh, go on calls, being a physician in the middle of the night, He did a cesarean birth, sometimes by, you know, not a very well-lit room. Sometimes he lost the baby. Sometimes he lost the mother. Um, So they kind of made this portrayal of him as the sacrificial man who gave to his community. And then because of his, his excess love of his work that he was drinking and blah, blah, blah. His mother, Ernest Hemingway's mother, on the other hand, was portrayed as a woman who gave up a career as a uh, opera singer and in the theater and how she resented that and did not let her children ever forget what she had sacrificed for them. I always feel like there's always a little twist in this differences in the story when we're portraying a woman or a man. Anyway, wife number 19. I love it. Um, What I loved about it is in my research this last year of church history um, trying to find out more truths about the LDS Church, the people who started the LDS Church, and the people that were, you know, involved in it. It was very, very interesting. And there were when when you talk about women in, in intuition, like they did describing her. Um, oftentimes in the church, there would be. Sp- a talk at conference or somebody visiting the congregation would give a talk and you would you had been taught to respect their authority and their position. So oftentimes when they would say something that you felt was completely contrary to maybe a teaching of Jesus or even other teachings that you had heard about the gospel, you would kind of, I at least would kind of go, you'd kind of get this pit in your stomach. Right. But you let it go. You just let it go because you would go back to the idea that humans are humans. The church only that God only has men to work with. Uh see, That's a problem right there, because there's also women he, that would be doing a much better job if there were women involved in some of the, you know, councils and stuff. Um, But anyway, so you would forgive them as being a man and you didn't take it in as, oh, that's a piece of doctrine that I didn't know about. I should forget everything I've ever learned and, and start going down this path. I never felt that way. I would just kind of cringe when I would hear something that I that I felt was just, oh, that's not right. That's not right. You know, even leaders that were put in positions of authority that I knew them not well, but I knew them from um, association uh Casual contact, you know, seeing them at church or church activities and things like that. Um, But you would hear things from people who worked for them if they were a business owner. And you would find out a little bit more about their um, a little bit more about their personality. So um, and you would find out, like, I don't think this person's a very honest person. I I think this person doesn't do business really on the up and up. And so then when they would come and speak at church and you would kind of find out some things about how they run their business, you would be like, wow, that was an interesting talk you just gave on honesty. uh, When I know you just cheated all of your employees out of their bonus checks, something like that, you know. But again, I never, ever researched the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I never researched their history. I would, you know, I had six children. Okay. One of them whom is extremely disabled who required oxygen tanks when I started going back to church right after he was born. So I'm hauling six kids and oxygen tanks to church by myself. Reading church history was not anywhere on my list of things to do. Okay. I just took for granted the things I heard, right? The things that were taught to me and they were always lovely and beautiful and inspiring and um, motivating to be the best person that you could be because look at these people, look what they went through. They were the best that you could ever want, right? So it wasn't until I started hearing some things, and honestly, it was an innocent delve into some things that were happening uh, politically that started me down the rabbit hole of looking into more of our church history. I remember hearing one time, and this is really silly, but I remember hearing one time that Tom Hanks did not like the Mormon church. And I thought, oh Tom, you're such a nice guy. I mean, that isn't that what everybody says about Tom Hanks. He's so nice. But I thought, wow, you hate the Mormons? Why is that? I didn't know anything about Prop 8, knew nothing about Prop 8. Okay. Again, I'm raising six crazy children, four boys, okay, two girls and four boys. All I have to say is four boys, and anybody that's a mother out there goes, Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. Okay. I I once heard someone say, If you are raising boys and you've never had the police pull up in front of your house, something's wrong. Okay. I've had the police pull up in front of my house. All right. Um, So, anyway, I was busy. I was busy. And if I did have a chance to read, it was something very lighthearted and something just fun. Okay. Church history did not appeal to me at that time. Anyway. But the more I started uh, delving into it the last couple of years, I started um, reading things. And I remember, you know what? And even in my defense, I will tell you, one of the books, one of the scripture sources that the Mormon Church uses is a book called The Doctrine and Covenants. And it is a collection of revelations that were given to Joseph Smith, supposedly. I remember years ago, because this was what the Mormon Church does is they have the Book of Mormon, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants. And they would alternate every year. One year you'd study the Old Testament, the next year the New Testament, the next year after that the Book of Mormon, the next year after that the Doctrine and Covenants. I always skipped the Doctrine and Covenants because I read it once. I read it once and I remember, again, my womanly instincts going, I don't know nah, that I feel very uncomfortable reading this. It seems very, um, Fortunate for Joseph Smith, some of these revelations worked out really well for him, not so much for anybody else. And, but I never questioned them. I always read them and I felt badly that I didn't believe that they were true revelations. And I felt like that was something that I needed to work on. So I really, I read the, like I said, I read the Doctrine and Covenants once and I was like, yeah, this book bothers me a little bit. But anyway, so, but then when I started reading church history more, And I started hearing about the, you know, what was happening in Palmyra, and then what was happening in Kirkland, Ohio, and then what was happening in Missouri, and then what was happening in Nauvoo, Illinois. And I remember reading that Joseph Smith was a scam artist. He, he was, he was, he should have been arrested for fraud. And, and, um, and I couldn't believe that everybody was like, well, he was just, you know, again, he was just human. He was just doing the best he could. So anyway, uh, so one of the things she says in the very first um, chapter was um, let's let's read a little bit from her very first book. She was oh, she's talking about her wonderful mother and father. And she says uh, she's talking about her mother and she's talking about how her mother, um she had a really hard life at first, and she ended up with a family that were that were members of the church, and that's how she got converted. And then um, she talked about how she uh, met her her father, and it's, she says the year following my father's arrival in Kirkland, and and his first meeting with my mother, they were married. The first few months of their married life was peculiarly happy. I love that, and they prospered beyond their most sanguine expectations. My father was a wheelwright by trade and uh, directly on reaching Kirtland, built a wagon manufacturing and started in business for himself. He was eminently successful in his undertaking and made money sufficiently fast to suit his own ideas and ambitions. He built a cozy little house and carried my mother to it. And there for the first time since she was a child, she knew what it was to have a home a genuine home, not a mere resting place where she felt herself an intruder, but a place in which she was mistress over which love and she held absolute and undisputed sway. It was during that happy period, the only happy time in her whole life that she fitted herself to teach. She was an indefatigable. look that word up, student And she made the most and the best of her time. At that time, she studied to satisfy her intense craving for knowledge and as a pleasant recreation with no thought that she might someday have to turn her studies to practical account. She had not then been introduced to the doctrine of plural wives and its attendant glories, which being defined meant miseries and torture. And the definition has never been altered and never will be until women's natures are most radically changed. I love that. As I said before, my father was prospering in worldly affairs, and when it was revealed to Joseph Smith that in addition to the profession of prophet, he should add that of banker. He assisted Smith in founding the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. By promising to deposit all his money therein, in short, giving Smith all that he possessed outside of his house and shop towards completing the amount necessary for a capital on which to start the new enterprise. When the bank failed, which it did very shortly after its establishment, my father, of course, lost every cent which he had invested, he was intensely disgusted with the whole proceeding, which, if it had happened in the Gentile world, would have been termed swindling, and Smith would not have been easily let off by the mere calling of names. Many Gentiles who had suffered by the failure were not so lenient as Smith's followers, and demanded that the prophet should answer to the complaint of swindling before the United States court, But as usual, he eluded the officers of justice and all attempts to arrest him were unavailing. So this is what I thought when I first started hearing about the Kirtland Safety Society and the bank and what he had required the people to do and how they had lost everything. This was just the beginning. And I compare it to today's people. When you compare wrongs that have been done in the church to wrongs that have been done outside of the church and the people that have gone to prison or who have had some kind of legal aftermath night and day. And I just don't think that's fair. I think people should be held accountable. So anyway, it's amazing. It's a beautiful book. I really encourage you to read it. If you are reading it, would you mind getting on the Facebook page, That what it's called? I don't know. I gotta go back and look. Anyway, look up on Facebook. She became visible. Comment, tell me if you've read the complete book. If you have, give me some of your feelings. I did, I did look up some of the um Amazon reviews, and I thought they were really, really interesting. Let me find it again. Um Amazon reviews. You can't have that many pages, and it'd be helpful if I could spell too. Um Well, I can spell. It's just my fingers are not going where they want them to. Of wife number 19. I wonder, I have to read further to find out why she calls herself wife number 19. I think that's very interesting. Oh, four out of five stars. I recommend this book to anyone genuinely interested in the history. This is a fascinating account of polygamy in the early Mormon church. Anne Eliza Young was one of the many wives of Brigham Young, one of the church's early founders. And that's what I loved about it. It's it's uh it's like reading a, a history book, but there's people involved. It's kind of you know how sometimes you'll read books like uh historical novels, you know, that are. There's a, what do they call it? It's historical fiction, where they'll use a fictional family to tell the historical truths about what was going on in a certain era. And I love, in fact, I read one um, about Ernest Hemingway called The Paris Wife that I thought was so interesting. And I read another one about um, Frank Lloyd Wright that was a historical fiction, and it was really, really interesting. Um, But anyway, some of the reviews that are on Amazon for the book are, um, as a once true believing convert of the Mormon faith, I knew little of the polygamous and polyandrous lifestyle of the early saints. I had been taught for over 35 years in church, Sunday school lessons, church talks, general conference, family home evening, relief society and firesides, the sanitized version of polygamy. The version I was taught was and still is a very weird, almost acceptable version of polygamy. I was taught that polygamy was practiced by a small percentage of church men, extremely worthy men to help with the surplus of widows and children of slain men of the church due to early historical church accounts of persecution. The purpose to live and have a stable and caring environment to take care of those widows and orphans that had no way to support themselves in the 1800s. However, the reality of the truth is so much different, so much uglier, and so much more disturbing than the sanitized version we have all been fed over the years. The author of Wife Number 19 was Brigham Young's 19th wife, Annalisa Young. She gives us a firsthand account of a full believing member of the early church and the dangerous lifestyle and deadly deeds of its own members. I think that's a good review so in conclusion of my book review if you have not listened to lindsay hansen Parks podcast uh, a year of polygamy you need to start with number one and work your way through because lindsay is adamant of telling the true story of polygamy and not the sanitized version and it is w- w- that probably is very high on my list of one of the reasons why i am no longer a member of the church because that is nothing that i, I could never, ever go along with that. I could never turn my eyes away looking the other way and say that was okay. That was an okay thing to do. So anyway, June 2022, this is the book that we're going to talk about this um, this month or that I'm going to make myself finish. 397. I'm going to 372 pages. That's not bad, but you know, it's like this kind of 397. There's no pictures in this book. Okay, people. Anyway. All right. Have a great Wednesday. Happy June 1st. Happy Pride Month. And I hope you enjoy reading the book. And like I said, would you get on my Facebook page and tell me if you are reading it and tell me what your feelings are. I'm open, right? I'm here to learn. All right. Have a great day. And don't forget to become visible. Stand up. Be who you are. Set an example for everyone around you. All right. Bye.